Sinister Parlor. Sinister Parlor. Sinister Parlor. Sinister Parlor. <laughs> Good evening, fiends. Welcome to Sinister Parlor Podcast. I am Zombie Barbie, and tonight I have a very special guest and my very first guest for the new podcast director, writer, artist, model, podcaster, everything that you can possibly think of he does. <laughs> Johnny Daggers. Hello. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I am good. I am good. Thank you. It's a pleasure and an honor to be uh, part of the first episode. Yes. Sinister Parlor episode number Hell one. Oh yeah. I I'm so excited. Well, it's like I was thinking earlier, so we've known each other, what, 11, 12, 13 years, and this is the first time we've done something together. I was thinking, yeah, I mean, 13, I was thinking 14, that could be off a year. Yeah, it's been a while. It could be 14. I mean, it's been a long ass time. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, so it's good to finally, you know, collaborate on, you know, a show together. Um, yes. Always exciting. Yes. So before we started recording, you were talking about that, um, which I did want to bring up just because it's really cool, but you were the first, well, one of the first podcasters ever. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> crazy. Um, basically live 365. I think it's still around too. It launched in the mid nineties, like 96 or 97. And I signed up, you know, I had always been a journalist. I used to, I started my first magazine in 1995 called Golgotha magazine. I remember and, that. Uh, yeah, it was a, uh, you know, it was a punk industrial goth magazine and, uh, you know, just interviewed a bunch of cool bands. Marilyn Manson was the first band that we ever interviewed for the magazine that came FDM and really all kinds of people. And, uh, you know, I did Golgotha for like five, six years and then Live 365 launched and, you know, I like all kinds of different music and, um, I wanted to launch a, well, I launched a rockabilly magazine called Turn Up Speed, um, which was based off of the first, I'm a huge James Dean fan, and uh, the first Love James it. Dean book that I ever read, uh, you know, the gentleman that killed James Dean in the car crash is uh, Donald Turnupseed, but the first book that I ever read, they misprinted his name, and they spelled his last name Turnup Speed. So all these years, I was thinking, how ironic is that? He gets killed in a car crash by the guy with the last name Turnup Speed. But then I later <laughs> found out that it was just a typo in that novel that I had. But anyway, I kind of I was always like, well, you know, when I started my rockabilly magazine, I called it Turnup Speed for that very reason. And uh, that was a, that was about the time that Live 365 started up, and I signed on to do a radio show to uh, coincide with the magazine. And uh, therefore, you know, I never. I didn't know podcasting was going to be that big of a thing all these years later, but yeah, I was mm -hmm. started off with the turn up speed broadcast and then that ran for a couple of years and I did an all cure podcast called head on the cure.net and I interviewed uh, all the cure members past and present and the show played like live concerts and the interviews that I did. And so that was fun because cure have always been one of my favorite bands. So cure is amazing. Sit down. <laughs> yeah. yeah like interview Robert Smith. I interviewed him on the phone and then in person when they came to Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio for the Curiosa tour. So that was just super awesome. And then everybody else, you know, that was has to present from the Cure. So I did that for a while. And then, you know, 
did the Dagger Vision Films podcast like mm -hmm. in 2011 or 12. Did that for a year with uh, my old buddy Brian Connington. So yeah, I have a lot I remember of that. Because <laughs> you guys yeah, have traveled sometimes too, huh? Pardon me? Wouldn't you guys travel sometimes to like radio stations and stuff and do like interviews? Uh, no. What you're thinking of is I was invited because that, that you're probably thinking of some of the shows that I was asked to come out for to be interviewed for my film Caustic Zombies back in 2011. Uh -huh. I got to a couple radio shows in Ohio had me out to, to talk about the film and stuff. But Brian and I, for our podcast, we went to some conventions. We set up the podcast at a couple conventions, but we didn't really go to other shows so much. Um, just a couple, couple conventions. I think we did Pittsburgh Horror Realm. And then I think we did the Cinema Wasteland in Ohio. We broadcast from there once, but yeah. And now oddly enough, I'm back into the podcasting world in my spare time, which is very minimal, but I, I have, uh, it's called the Screwed Loot and Tattooed Radio Show, where uh, I'm back to interviewing a lot of rockabilly bands and, um, you know, like alternative country, like Hank Free and stuff like that. So Damn, you got connections. I didn't know that you had interviewed Marilyn Manson too. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that's actually a funny story. So <laughs> at the time, like it was right before Marilyn Manson got big. It was probably right after, you know, the spooky kids broke up or whatever. And, uh, you know, Manson was just starting. Um, mm -hmm. I was a fan, but like, it's not really my thing. And my buddy Tom, however, was like a huge Manson fan. And he was like, I really want to go see Marilyn Manson. They're coming to town in a couple of weeks. And man, like I'll openly admit this. I just, I didn't want to go. If I went, I didn't feel like spending money on the tickets. So <laughs> I, I was working construction at the time. And one day during construction, I thought, the club they were playing at, my best friend from kindergarten all through our early 20s, his brother actually ran that club. So I was like, I'll reach out to Doug and I'll tell him that I started a fanzine and that like, I want to get tickets to interview Manson and like blah, blah, blah. So it was like a whole farce because I didn't have a magazine. I was just like, oh, you know, just to get in so I didn't have to pay. And uh, I reached Doug and Doug was like, yeah, I don't have anything to do with that anymore, um, but you'll have to contact the concert promoter. And oh, so the concert wow. promoter was a real dickhead, but I contacted the promoter and he was like, I don't have anything to do with it either. You have to contact uh, the band's record label. And I was like, well, this is getting to be a bit more involved than I wanted it to be. They were, uh, you know, Interscope Records uh, or nothing records. It was Interscope uh, PR, Formula, Formula PR was doing, was doing the publicity for them. So I reached out and I was like, hey, you know, I have this fanzine and I'm like, local to the Pittsburgh area being arrested or interested in doing the arrested <laughs> arrested yeah well, that was a Freudian slip with some other things uh but yeah I uh I was like did I just say that um but no so I reached out and uh they said well you'll have to fax us a copy fax fax back when faxes <laughs> yeah they're like you will have to fax us a copy of your cover for your magazine and at least two or three articles that you have written, like music reviews, concert reviews, or something like that. Well, this is back, you know, in the early 90s. So I don't have a computer. You know, that was right before it was a household thing for most people. 
my buddy Tom did. So they said, okay, fax us over the cover, a couple articles. She said, I'll show it. If I like it, she's like, I'll show it to the band. And if they like it, she's like, not to, you know, be a negative Nancy or anything, but they don't really like anything. But I'll show it to them if I like it. <laughs> if they do it, then there you go. So I'm like, okay. So I hung up and I'm like, shit. All right. Well, there's a possibility I could get this interview, but I don't have a computer. I don't even have a magazine. Go over to Tom's house, like came up with an idea right off the top of my head and call it Golgotha Magazine. Um, made a cover for it. And I had just seen a couple concerts that month. So I just remembered the best that I could. What those shows were like, wrote up a couple concert reviews, and he also had a fax machine, so I faxed everything over to their the formula publicity. And like two days later, I got a call, and her name was Stephanie. I never forget this. And she's like, "Congratulations! Not only did I like it, but I showed it to the band; they liked it." So I had two free tickets, two press passes, photo pass, all that stuff. And so I thought, "Wow, it, okay, so let's just do the magazine for real then." since we kind of have our foot in the door. So that is actually how I got my foot in the door with that. Um, and then from there, you know, I mean, interviewed Typo Negative and uh, oh, Thomas from the Electric Hellfire Club and KMFDM and Raymond Watts from Pig and uh, Leslie Rankin from Ruby and Stabbing Westward and like all kinds of, you know, industrial bands, Switch, Switchblade Symphony and like all kinds of people. So that was, yeah. Wow. Early start to all that kind of stuff. It just started on a little white, a little white lie. But, yeah, but fuck, it worked. That's awesome. Yeah. That's I don't think that would ever work nowadays. But back in the early nineties, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now they have internet. They'll be googling everything to check up on you. Yeah, like, exactly. Geez. Oh, that's ridiculous. Um, so I forgot to add in the beginning. You're also a musician. You do everything. Well. You know, <laughs> you're like, well, people, yes, I do. <laughs> people are very flaky, as you probably know. Oh, so yeah. my philosophy is learn to do as much as you possibly can. Therefore, you don't have to rely on other people. There you go. So, you know, especially, you know, in film, if you can pick up a camera and shoot a film and light it yourself and edit it yourself and compose some, if not all of the soundtrack or anything, you know, and also, you know, do graphic design and design your own DVD cover and your own, you know, or your own record cover. Like it just, it's a lot easier the more that you don't have to rely on other people. So that's always been my motto. Yeah. So I, I forgot to do graphic movie. design too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you know, all these years, it's like you always add to the collection of I can do this and I can do this and I can do this. And I'm trying to remember, like when I first met you, I can't remember if it was modeling that I had met you through. Or I remember you did, um, was it Gore Nor? You did that really badass photo shoot where you had that guy or that girl like yeah. locked in the cage and that bloody guy and there was like body parts everywhere. Yeah, but we knew each other before that though because um, the Gore Nor, they did that feature on me in 2011, I think. Or oh, okay. So we had been friends prior to that. But yeah, they, uh, you know, that's actually, how I accidentally fell into the modeling world, which I think was absolutely silly, but you know, I kind of went with it, but I was, uh, you know, just people would want to do interviews for, for the films and whatnot. And to coincide with that, they would always want a headshot or some type of photo to go with it for the magazine. And uh, so, you know, for Gore Noor, they did the interview and I was like, well, you know, it's a really bloody magazine. So I did a really bloody photo shoot from them. 
And then it was like maybe a month or two after that, I got contacted by a modeling agency that was like, hey, you know, uh, we sign alternative models and would love to have you aboard. And I just kind of thought it was really stupid and silly. But you did I was like, yeah. you had so many cool shoots. <laughs> yeah, you know, so I did that for a little while. And uh, just, it was kind of like a fun, you know, hobby type thing that yeah. I never really took serious too much. So it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's get into filmmaking um mm -hmm. what was your very first film that you directed i was uh, a, sh a short film 21 minutes long entitled samhain night feast and that was in 2010 nice and nobody then... was ever supposed to find out about that film either really um, it, you know yeah it was uh we well, as you know, because we've been friends for 14, 13, 14 years, and then we talked a little bit before the show, I never aspired, you know, to be a filmmaker. It was 2010, I was just really sick and tired of Hollywood remakes and sequels, and, you know, I still to this day don't really watch horror movies that are older than, I mean, I'll, I'll get into the 80s, but most of the stuff that I like is like the Twilight Zones and, you know, all the old, you know, 50s you know b horror films and i'm not really into the new cinema styles i think horse you know not that there's anything wrong with it just for me i'm not really into you know the vulgarity and the nudity and the violence and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. I, I like the order style so i just wanted to make a short film that i would enjoy watching something that kind of had like a hitchcock vibe to it mm -hmm. so you know i didn't have any equipment to speak of um but you know i knew that my grandmother had a camcorder uh tape camcorder too with that post of the digital so i'm like cool so I'll, you know i'll borrow that off of her and i'll get a couple friends together and it was just an excuse to get drunk and make a movie there you <laughs> so, go fun you know uh, fun yeah we shot it like i think in a night and a half and it was just supposed to be a film for for myself and my friends and about a week or two after i finished editing the film which this is so funny I didn't even have editing equipment back then. So I had a DVD VCR, like I had a VCR slash DVD burner mm -hmm. so that like I could burn VC, VHS tapes onto, onto DVDs. Mm -hmm. So I loaded, I told you we were shooting on the camcorder, which was film. So I loaded that up in the VHS side and, you know, put in a blank DVD. And it was almost like making a mixtape in the 80s. Every time that the scene would stop where I would need to actually cut in the video editor, I would just hit pause. Oh. You can't even tell the difference. It like literally looked like I, you know, had professional editing equipment and edited it. So I put the movie together that way. Wow. Um, and then about a week after it was edited, that's when I, that's when I met Brian Coddington. I met him on Craigslist because I, after I edited it together, I was just looking for an editor to kind of just give it a little bit of uh, extra grain to it to give it that like fifties vibe. You know, because I didn't have any editing software, I found Brian and he came in and put like a little bit more like the grittiness to it to make it look a little bit more old fashioned. Uh, and then about a week after it was all done, I got an email from my cousin, Mario, and he was like, hey, did you know that the Bastards of Horror Short Film Festival are screening Sam Hay Night Feast? And I'm like, what? Like, yeah, how, how did anybody even find out about this film, let alone it's being shown at a film festival. Yeah. So I reached out to uh, two gentlemen, Tim Gross, who you may be familiar with. He writes the Gross uh, horror movie book review, like they're massive volumes of, of movies. 
really revered in the horror community. And then his partner, Charlie Fleming, they're the two that put together the, uh, the festival. So I reached out to them and I'm like, really? So you somehow saw Sammy Night Feast and you're showing it at the festival. And he's like, yep. I was like, cool. Can I at least have two free tickets to, to come watch my movie my you know, on movie. the big screen? And they're like, yeah, cool. So, you know, I didn't take it serious. I figured, you know, I'm going up against seasoned filmmakers that knew what they were doing. I, I didn't have a clue. I didn't even have equipment. I was somehow barely put this movie together. And so this is in my really heavy drinking days. I bought a case of beer. My buddy Josh bought a case of beer and we went to the convention and uh, got completely wasted before the festival started. <laughs> so I'm outside having a cigarette and Sam Haynes probably five minutes into it and somebody comes out and they're like, you need to get inside immediately. Like they're showing Sam Haynes. And I was like, oh shit. So I go running in. I'm drunk, you know. <laughs> You're all stumbling. <laughs> yeah, I'm stumbling. I'm drunk. And there's, there's, there's some subtle humor in Samhain Night Feast that like you would have to be a horror fan to get. There's some subtle Halloween three references and like a little bit of, uh, you know, just a little bit of horror humor in there. Mm -hmm. And because I'm drunk and I'm already paranoid because like I never wanted anybody to see this movie, I walk into the theater and everybody's laughing. And I was like, oh shit, like they're laughing <laughs> Like, this is terrible. Like, they are literally laughing me off the screen. So I kind of like slouched Aww. over my chair. And I was like, this is terrible. Glasses on. You're like, it's not me. <laughs> yeah, they're all going to laugh at you. They just think they were. But then what I quickly found out is when the movie was over, everybody gave me a standing ovation. And Tim Gross walked up to the front of the room and he's like, that's it. Hands down. Sam Hain, Mike Peace was tonight's winner. Uh, Johnny Daggers, please come up and do a Q&A. And it was at that point where I'm like, shit, they understood the humor. That they weren't laughing because it was a joke. They were laughing at the jokes that I'd written in. And then I had to pretend that I was sober and get up in front of everybody and do a QA. <laughs> um, so that is how I first got into filmmaking. And that's when I thought, wow, if we can make a short film without even trying and having no idea what the hell we were doing, and it won a film festival, let's just do this for real. So again, everything in my life just happens for some fuck of a reason i have no idea why that's awesome, and so though. that's yeah so kind of how <laughs> what's that i said i need your luck i have terrible luck though outside of like a few breaks here and there with things like yeah it's always a black cloud of sorrow hanging above <laughs> my head <laughs> but yeah so yeah that's how i got into filmmaking and uh, you know here we are 10 years later and mm -hmm still doing it and on your show so that's awesome yeah that's freaking super awesome um and then the next one after that was that caustic zombies yeah sadly oh no did you not you don't you don't, you don't like that one uh yeah i mean i so you know with caustic zombies i broke all the rules you know you're supposed to film as many short films as you possibly can so you know what the hell you're doing mm -hmm. and i was like that's it you know, I throw caution to the wind. I made a short, fuck it, that's out of the way. Let's just go for it and do a feature. So, you know, I started working on Caustic Zombies. And I mean, that was like a whole whirlwind that swept up around that film. Um, 105.9 The X, which is a huge radio station in, in Pittsburgh, started calling it the, the greatest zombie movie since, you know, me being from Pittsburgh and also home of George Romero, Night of the Living Dead, you know, they were calling it like the greatest film since Night of the Living Dead. Um, I was being, this is the first time that like, you know, I just did a 20 minute short 
And all of a sudden, like I announced I'm doing Caustic Zombies and I'm getting calls from publications in the UK, like what to do interviews and talk about the movie and shit. And I'm like, I don't even fucking know my craft. You know what I mean? Like I haven't even worked long enough to know what the hell I'm doing. And so it was like just a whirlwind of like being caught up in excitement. And it's like, imagine doing what, what you love to do and everybody watching you as you just begin instead of like, I wished I had like, 10 years under my belt where nobody knew me yeah. where I could learn my craft and become an actual filmmaker. All of a sudden it was like, as soon as I started, everybody was watching. And that was that, that I don't like about it. And, and, and you know, Caustic Zombies, like the day that we, the first day that we started filming, it hit the front news of the local paper. Mm-hmm. And we had like 150 to 200 people show up to watch us film, like in the middle of downtown. Like they oh, thought we were, man. it was funny. They actually, they thought we were doing a remake of uh, either Night of the Living Dead or Dawn of the Dead or something, because mm-hmm. it was a zombie movie like that. It's all original, but we had police escorts. I mean, the police barricaded roads off for us, and wow. we had military vehicles in the movie, and I actually, I had to alert the authorities because, you know, we had these big, giant 50-gallon drums that were painted with, uh, you know, radioactive symbols on mm-hmm. them, and so, you know, post 9-11, you don't want anybody to think like there's some type of biohazard or quarantine so I had to alert the police we had roadblocks and you know they escorted us places and we were treated like real movie stars it was like crazy um you know and everything was going good with the film and then we had a premiere that we booked at the Hollywood Theater in Dormont Pennsylvania probably it was probably booked too early because the film wasn't officially edited at that (laughs) time and long story short, I won't mention his name, but one of the people that were involved with the movie had, it was a misunderstanding is what it was. Somebody tried to start a bunch of drama for no reason, and he believed them over me and kept the tapes. Oh, fuck. So, because we were shooting on film, so he kept all the film, and the movie was never edited properly. Uh, Brian Connington came in to save the day and did a little bit of color correcting on what he could um, so that they could have the screening that we had, uh, it had a sol- uh, sold out screening at the Dormont Theater, um, which was exciting, but it wasn't the official cut of the movie and the movie never officially got released. I, for a while there, the version that showed at the screening, I did a unofficial official bootleg that I put out there for a while just so people would have something. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. The acting is like, pardon like all of my friends that acted from that like it was just like the acting was subpar and I didn't know what I was doing and it never officially got released because of the drama you know and said person keeping the footage um so yeah I mean it was it was the growing pains though you know what I mean I don't regret it like it kind of sucks that it happened but it was like literally the first feature film that I ever tried to make and it just started off really good and then quickly turned into you know a dumpster fire and I don't I don't have any grudges with anything. I just, you know, my whole thing is I wish that I wasn't under the microscope under such close examination as soon as I started, you know, it would have been nice to just be Mm -hmm. low key and learn my craft before anybody ever knew who I was. But unfortunately, God's a funny man. (laughs) Like, we're just going to make everybody watch you as you do this for the first time. So Uh, it's like, no, no pressure, no pressure. Yeah, (laughs) no pressure at all. So that was my long-winded answer to that. <laughs> That's awesome, though. <laughs> um, so 
you were able to release it, just not everything that had been edited from the other guy. Yeah, it was just a really rough, um, unofficial bootleg that I put out there for some of the fans. I think I might've sold a couple hundred copies and then I, like it was meant to be a limited edition because it wasn't, it wasn't the director's cut. It wasn't what I wanted the world to see and it wasn't done properly. And then I think five, five years later, probably, I finally got the, 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 the film back. Oh. But at that point though, you know, I had already grown as a filmmaker yeah. and it was yeah. nothing that I really thought the world needed to see at that point you know, after five years, I was like, there's just no sense. You know, I was already working on other things, and, you know, other films were, were happening. And I just thought there's no sense in going back and revisiting this, but it was a growing experience and it taught me a lot. And I have a lot of fond memories of it. And there are, that's the thing that sucks is there are some really badass scenes in that movie that turned out awesome. Like, especially with some of the military vehicles and the containment officers. Um, there's some really awesome scenes, but then there's also some very bad scenes just because all I did was round, round up my friends and say, you want to act in a movie? And Let's they never it. had acting experience. So yeah, it was like, you know, yeah. So. <laughs> we have all these memories and all these experiences yes. to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, so after that, what was your next one? See, <laughs> this is why I always give advice to filmmakers because, <clears throat> you know, I made that short film, right? Mm -hmm. Didn't want anybody to see it. Then they, they saw it and went to a film festival and won. And I'm like, this is easy. And then Caustic Zombie started off great and then just, yeah. So, you know, after that, I was like, you know, I don't really know if I, it kind of took the wind out of me. I was like, I really need some time to think. Cause like I said, I never aspired to be a filmmaker. So I really needed to think about whether I wanted to go through all the hassle of making another movie. So in the meantime, um, Brian Coddington, who I mentioned, he's also a filmmaker. He wrote a film for his college thesis entitled Tablet of Tales, and he wrote the lead role for uh, the character of Fritz Alistair Murnau, um, who is devil, the devil in human form. He wrote that, he wrote that role for me, and so I acted in his film as the devil in human form, and that was, that was a lot of fun and yeah and so then after that i started working on i was like all right you know what i'm tired of dealing with people so i've always been an avid fan of stop motion animation films and there there are two filmmakers they're brothers uh originally from philadelphia pennsylvania and then later moved to germany and started making some of the best stop motion films you can ever see with the Quake brothers and it's just like really dark really really dark in fact back in the days if you remember mtv liquid television how they yes. would have like creepy stop animation uh commercials mm -hmm. quay brothers did some of them not all of them but the quay brothers actually did some of those uh but they're really dark really demented and i was like yeah i'd really like to do something like that like if you could picture merging like the evil dead with like nightmare before christmas and like just making it you know like really brutal stop motion where you know um, so I started working on that and I actually acquired Doug Bradley, who's Pinhead and Hellraiser, and he mm -hmm. was going to do the narration. And, I remember uh, that. <clears throat> Brian and I, I remember that project. Yeah. yeah, Brian and I helped get Doug Bradley his green card. So he was uh, dating at the time our friend Steph Shulo, who lived like literally like 20 minutes up the road from me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we got Doug aboard and uh, 
met up with him a few times for some meetings. And then staff was actually, she's an amazing artist. So she came over and she was doing, she was helping me because I was doing a lot of the sculpting and building and she mm -hmm. was helping out with that. Um, and we launched a crowdfunding campaign that did pretty good. We got a couple thousand dollars right off the bat, to let, like enough to get supplies to start making some buildings. And um, I'd say we probably had 25% of like everything built which may not sound like a lot, but there was a lot of tiny buildings and structures. And I lived in a giant artist loft at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had the room for it, but then all of a sudden the sets just kind of took over a life of their own. And I needed to move everything to an actual warehouse. Well, I needed giant trucks to move everything and then it's expensive to run a warehouse. Oh, so yeah. I had the money for none of this. And, it, and then after we built everything that we had at that point, you know, we used up all the funds for crowdfunding. Mm -hmm. So it kind of just came to a standstill. And so again, this is still back in my heavy drinking days. And like, because I was going in my loft, I would literally come home to a movie set every single day of my life mm -hmm. that wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. And in a very fitting Edgar Allan Poe moment of coming home from the bar completely inebriated at like three o'clock in the morning, I'm being haunted by this doll world, you know, that's around yeah. me, you know, and there's spooky forests and mausoleums and creepy structures and, you know, in, in a drunken stupor, I just couldn't take the anguish of like, it's staring at me and nothing was progressing with it. And so I just smashed everything. <gasps> I didn't know that. I remember you showing me pictures of the sets when you guys were building them, but I did not smashed know. Smashed it all. Oh smashed my all. gosh. Yeah. Smashed it all. And was like, fuck it, you know, like it was just a very miserable, depressing point in my life. And it was at that point where it's like, I don't even know if I want to bother because it started off great, but then Caustic Zombies just didn't work out in the end. And then, you know, um, Moan on Car, which was the title for that film, like it just came to a standstill because we ran out of funds. And I was like, you know, I just can't do this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know. The only thing that saved me was during that time, and I thought that I was going to quit. Um, I got hired to be in two episodes of an A&E television show called Those Who Kill. Oh. So I was an extra on two episodes of A&E's Those Who Kill. I was cast as a punk rocker. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why. Yeah, not typecast <laughs> or anything. Um, and that actually was an eye-opener because no offense like that show was a really good show everybody that i worked with was great um but the cast had no idea like the crew i should say had no idea what the hell they were doing oh. like the ad's yelling at everybody and like everybody's in chaos and turmoil and like nobody knew where anybody was at and i thought wow okay, so I've had some problems with my sets, like just because of mostly financial problems, you know, for the most yeah. part, with a little bit of, uh, you know, drama. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, like my sets, like even when Tim Gross, who had the, the film festival, he came out, like I said, he's one of the, the most revered uh, horror movie reviewers. He actually came out to a set of filming on Caustic Zombies and then wrote an article about it for his and he said it was like a well-oiled machine. Like everything was just boom, 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 like perfect. And like, I felt very fortunate like that my sets were very tight and, you know, professional. Mm -hmm. And after watching the haphazard chaos of, you know, being on an A&E TV show, I thought, well, 
shit, okay, you know what? I've had some setbacks, but like at least my sets will run better than this. Yeah. So that kind of gave me a little, a little bit of encouragement to uh, <laughs> want to keep going. This is awesome. Hell yeah. Wow. I didn't know the A&E part. No. I'm Did you ever post that? Because I don't think you ever, really? All the time. Yeah. Oh man. I don't know. Huh. Yeah. I don't remember that. I remember a yeah, lot. I, mean, but I don't remember that part. It was a fun experience. There's a scene where uh, the punk band Anti-Flag is playing and I'm one of the concert goers right up against the, the guy, I think the stunt coordinator wanted me and my friend Patch like right up against the stage. He's like, you guys are awesome. Like I want to put you right in front of the stage so that the camera's on you the whole time. And we're like, yeah, it sounds awesome. And like our sole job was to catch some SAG actor stage diving and like he would dive off the stage, would have to catch him and pass him back so that he could crowd surf. But he wasn't a punk. He was just a SAG actor. And he didn't even know how to jump off the damn stage. So I kid you not, like this kid was bigger than both Patch and I. And we had to do at least, I looked at Patch at one point. I said, for fuck's sakes, how many takes have we done so far? He's like, I lost count at 32. <gasps> because the kid could not jump off the stage and land correctly. The And I'm like, I finally look at the stunt coordinator. I'm like, for the love of God, can I just jump off the damn stage? And he's like, nope, nope. For liability purposes, like you have to be a SAG actor and I can't let you do it. And I'm like, I can nail this and once. Let me jump, dude. <laughs> like, let me do it yeah. and be done with it. But, uh, you know, rules are rules. So we had to do like 30 some takes of catching this dude and finally like passing them back. And that was like a whole eight hour shoot <laughs> of just doing that. Yeah. And then when they edited the entire show together, like you see me for like, there I am, there I'm not. Cause it was just like, it's so movie. quick. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I'm like, wow. But I mean, it was still an experience cause I got to do two episodes. Like the other episode that I was on was, uh, you know, Chloe, it's funny. It's like, oh, yeah. okay. mm -hmm. so her and I actually had a scene together and I was like, that's awesome. It's just her and me. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm definitely going to have some good camera time on this. And like the whole thing was I'm sitting at a table in a bar and I'm smoking a cigarette and I'm drinking a beer and she like walks right past me and like goes to a cigarette machine that's right behind me and like puts in a couple or dollars, you know, and gets, gets a pack of cigarettes out of the cigarette machine. And then like, so I'm like so excited. Like the first episode aired that I was on and I was like, well, there I am there. I'm not, but the second episode, you're definitely going to see a lot more of me uh, <laughs> because it's just Chloe and I, and the room was so dimly lit and I had on like, uh, my wide brim fedora, like uh, like Sid, like uh, Gary Oldman wore and Sid and Nancy, uh -huh. and so it cast like a shadow over my face. And because the room was dimly lit, like you just see like a brief lit profile of me. Like that's my profile right there. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, that's you know. I was like, so, but yeah, but it was still it was it was cool and it was it was a lot of fun. So at least you have the experience, you know. Yeah, exactly. And I still actually behind me. Oh, this is so convenient. So, didn't even mean for this to happen, but because we happen to be upstairs in my studio, so you're not allowed to smoke real cigarettes on the set, as you know. Oh, I actually so they, didn't know that. Yeah, well, they just they don't like it because it messes up the equipment, and oh, okay. uh, so they, they like I had my own cigarettes, and they came over and they're like, "You have to put that out here. Smoke these." And these are like getting a glare, but it's like honeysickle kind of some herb shit that tastes like it's like the worst tasting thing in the world, but this is the pack of cigarettes that I smoked on there. Oh. And then obviously, because you're not allowed to use name brand beer, 
Uh, one of them, I guess this is supposed to be a knockoff of Old Milwaukee. It's called Old Muskogee. <laughs> Muskogee. <laughs> That's one of the beers that I drank on set. And then uh, Pennsburg. So we weren't allowed to keep the bottles or anything. But I smuggled them out afterwards because I'm like, I need some souvenirs from this. But yeah, yeah so those are my two little souvenirs for being on a and How'd you smuggle them? Did you just stick them in a bag? Like, how'd they not see you? I stuck a bottle in my leather jacket, and I think I stuck <laughs> a bottle down my pants. And uh, then, you know, the pack of cigarettes, I think I just stashed somewhere in one of my other pockets. So, but yeah, I'm like, you know, I'm not walking out of here without at least a couple souvenirs. So. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I never knew that they didn't smoke real cigarettes. That's crazy. I mean, I do on my sets. I mean, yeah. You know, it just depends, you know. Uh, when we did Noctambulist, I, we had a scene where uh, there was a speakeasy and people were smoking cigars. And I mean, I just gave everybody real cigars. And that's why You're your right. sets are cool, because you do the cool shit. <laughs> hey, you know what? I don't do things half-assed, that's for sure. <laughs> why I grew this beard, we'll get, maybe we'll get into it later, but one of my next roles, I'm actually going to be making a return to acting and starring, and my character needs to have a beard, so it's, uh, you know, grow the beard in, he's an alcoholic on the set, and, you know, during the films, I'm going to be drinking real alcohol, because you got to do it real. Damn. So, you know, method acting, that's where it's at. Hell Yeah. So um, the new film, um, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but the new film. No, go back to where you need to be. I didn't need to skip ahead. I oh, mean, no. Well, like, I just don't want to forget, because um, Noctambulist, that was an awesome fucking film. Thank you. And you only saw the friend version. Oh. So you only like, saw what I sent you, right? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know there was uh, a version. I re-edited the film after that. Um, oh, okay. That was that was a rough draft that you had seen. I, I fixed up some of the music score with that, and then there's probably maybe seven additional minutes that you didn't see, and then some other different changes with the editing. But thank you. Yeah, I mean, you saw a rough, a rough cut of it, but I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, I loved it because it's like you, you know, people obviously don't know yet. Well, I mean, people that know you know of it, but um, it was all silent. It was a silent film. Mm -hmm which yeah, I, not a, what's that well at the time i think i had told you and i'm sure you've seen it and i don't know the name of it but it was a salvador salvador dali um silent film and it was talking about the, the disney uh, animated disney one or he did a, he did the other one i forget the name of it i have it it's a it's a short he, oh, and it's really it? creepy like i remember i remember a bunch of spiders in it and there was a bunch of like creepy weird shit in it it's very he very old he actually worked with a couple films. I haven't downloaded. I downloaded it offline. And Salvador Dali is my favorite artist. So I'm really making a fool out of myself right now by not remembering the name of the film that you're speaking of. But I have it. And then there's a couple other films that he did uh, little bits and pieces of. Um, but yeah, what, what inspired me with Noctambulous was, you know, my love for uh, the old films, uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari which mm -hmm. will always be one of my favorite films. Um, the Phantom Carriage, um, you know, just so so many of the greats that I've always wanted to do a silent film, but I wanted to wait until I had the ability to do it correctly. Mm -hmm. You know, like I knew that 
at the time when I was still learning a lot of, and everybody, I'm still learning. Like there's so many things I still learn every time I, I, I do a new project. But, you know, going back 10 years ago, like, I knew I wasn't ready then to like successfully make a silent film. Um, and everything kind of just fell into place with Noctambulist. You know, I was just studying a lot of the old shooting techniques because things were shot so much differently with silent movies. Mm -hmm. You know, you didn't have all the cuts and all the close-ups. And, you know, I mean, I did speed up the pacing a little bit, so it wasn't as slow as the older movies. And I did do a little bit more of uh, some of the modern, uh, like, cutaway effects and, and whatnot. But with a lot of the effects... You know, I tried to, uh, or with a lot of the camera angles, like the Dutch camera angle, which I use often where, you know, the camera's above the actors and kind of down on them a bit. Like, that was a huge um, technique, you know, back in silent cinema. And I tried to implement a lot of that in with Noctambulist and stay as true to the old films, but yet give it a little bit more modern vibe. So mm -hmm. it wasn't a uh, financially wise decision to do. And, uh, that movie released last year, so in 2019, you know, not too many people watch silent movies these days, but I did it for me, for the art, because it's what I felt compelled to, to make. So. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, it actually screened at the Worldcon International 75 Film Festival in Helsinki, Finland. So that was awesome to, like, you know, get chosen for a festival and know that people over in Finland were like showing up at the theaters to watch Noctambulus. That was pretty cool. But it's definitely much more of a European style film. Like people in Europe dig it a lot more. It's more of a European art film, yeah. so to speak, than, than what most, you know, Americans are into. <laughs> most Americans. <laughs> yeah. They want explosions and like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. boobs popping out on the screen and <laughs> all that kind of stuff so you know yeah i don't know but yeah it, it was it's actually it's my baby it's the only film that i ever will take credit for like i said i, I never liked being examined under the microscope with my earlier work but you know and that that even includes my documentary that came out in 2014 blood on the grill like that was such a piece of shit uh, so it's like far <laughs> As far as I'm concerned, like Noctambulist is the only film that matters because that, that was my baby. And I, yeah. I love how it came out. Well, and you even with like the sets and the clothes, like you made sure everything was time period, right? For the most part. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's some Puritans out there that can probably pick apart something and say, well, that's not. But for the most part, the average viewer you know, for the yeah. most part is going to see, you know, I mean, I was, so the thing about it was I used to be, so many people would say this to me, I used to be a guerrilla style filmmaker where it would be like, you just pick up the camera, you load as many people as you can in the car and you just go out and you film a movie, mm -hmm. you know? And it was like about 2000, it was like right around the time of Blood in the Real. Again, I didn't know if I wanted to continue making films just because, you know, it's such a hassle to get locations and permits and cast and crew and this, that, the other. And I'm just like, you know, maybe I'll just focus on writing more books and working on my artwork instead. Um, but, you know, it was at that point where I'm like, look, if I'm going to make a movie, like, I got really anal about it. I'm like, I need to be as meticulous as possible, especially trying to do a period film, you know? Yeah. So we had early 1920s Model T car in the film. And most of the wardrobe we tried to keep is, excuse me, we tried to keep as authentic as possible. Like there's a point where uh, my lead actor, Nicholas, who plays uh, the character Stellan, 
he's wearing a pair of patent leather shoes and like fear just came over me one day i'm like oh my god like when did they start wearing patent leather shoes i had to look it up and like actually it fit within the era um but i don't think that the treads on the bottom of the shoes were error appropriate but it's like that's such a minor little thing you know what i mean that it's like okay if you really want to pick apart the film you could look for that little flaw but like who else would really notice that yeah um but you know for the most part yeah i try to be as meticulous as possible with the sets and you know it again it just it happened to be the film that fell into place because i when i moved to maryland i met a lady that's a, a hair and makeup artist and i was doing a music video for a band that was coming in from the uk and um the locations for the music video kind of changed based on one of the other people involved with the video and um we were going to be filming in pa then we were going to be filming in maryland and it was all over the place because this kid couldn't couldn't keep a house like he kept getting kicked out of everywhere that he lived so uh finally uh we just decided on a place that was in pennsylvania to shoot the music video and the hair and makeup artist was like look i can't travel to pa to do this like because i have a day job so she's like keep me in mind if you ever need me in the future so when it came time to los angeles i reached out to her her name's puppy roman fox she's like oh my god i would love to do this and i let me introduce you to some of my friends so she introduced me to two of her best friends uh, bonnie shipley peel and steve summerlin and they have this beautiful house over on the eastern shore in maryland and it's all furnished with 1920s antiquities oh wow they're like you can film here and you can use all of our 1920s furniture and you know everything that you need and uh you might remember the scene with the uh without giving too much away the ferryman the what across the, little, the ferryman uh -huh. in the movie that takes the little girl across the you know the stygian shores and all that stuff uh like that's actually also in their backyard so not only did they have all the 1920s oh. antiquities but they had the creepy woods and they had the boat dock and they had the private pond and like just everything was available at my fingertips to, wow to yeah so it worked out <laughs> yeah it was definitely meant to be so you know that's my baby. That's the, and if, if you get a chance, you know, watch, uh, watch the official release that's out there. So. Well, yeah, I will. I didn't know that there was, that you had edited, like re-edited. I didn't know that. Yeah. There, that was a rough draft that I sent you. And I think at one point there was a slight continuity issue with one of the wardrobes. So I had to fix that. Oh. And then, um, there's a scene where I thought it could have just been a little bit more involved and I had some appropriate footage that I decided to add to that scene to just okay. uh, expand on uh, the one scene a little bit more. So, and then the music got a complete overhaul with that. So I don't even know, maybe 60% of the soundtrack might be different than the rough cut that you saw. So oh, shit. Okay. So I'll watch it then. Uh, you can watch it on Amazon. I think it's free. On Amazon cool. Right okay. Now. So yeah. But uh, I didn't know that either. Jeez. <laughs> or anybody that wants to buy it, you know, you can get it at Best Buy, Target, Walmart, Amazon, all the major movie retailers. Throw that little plug out there. But Hell yeah, definitely. Um, so how did you get distribution? You know, because with it being at Best Buy and Am or Best Buy and Walmart and all that stuff, how do you, how do you do that? That actually happened because, <clears throat> excuse me, I briefly mentioned the documentary that I don't like that I did yeah. in uh, 2014 called Blood on the Real. And basically with that, <clears throat> uh, let's see. So Dagger Vision Films started in 2010. 
And I always said that if I made it five years, that I wanted to release something special for people. Because mm -hmm. five years is a long time in the indie world. Because a lot of people make one movie and they quit and they give up because yeah. they realize yeah. like it takes a lot of money or it takes a lot of time and commitment or a lot of internal turmoil with drama that people are just like, I quit, I'm done. Like, it's not worth my time. Mm -hmm. So for an indie company that's running on very minimal, um, you know, budget to make films, like five years is a relatively long time. So at that point I was coming up on five years. Um, I moved to Maryland. So Brian and I parted ways. I didn't have a cast or crew. Still didn't have any of my old, still didn't have any of my own equipment. And I'm like, man, guess I'm not gonna do anything for a five year anniversary because there's just no way for me to make a film. And I thought about re-releasing Sam Hay Night Feast. And um, I thought about re-releasing it with like a bunch of bonus features, basically a mini documentary, yeah. which was just yeah. me talking about the trials and tribulations that independent filmmakers go through. You know, during Caustic Zombies, there were times where I didn't know if I was gonna be able to pay my mortgage. Um, mm -hmm because I was putting all that money into my film, like a lot of sacrifices. Um, I almost got shot by military police making Caustic Zombies. Fuck. Um, the, the premise behind Caustic Zombies was that it started from a near nuclear mishap. Me being from PA, you might be familiar uh, hearing stories about Three Mile Island that happened in the 70s where they had a nuclear, near nuclear meltdown and uh, one of the reactors melted down and there was a certain percentage of uh, a certain radius that was infected by radiation leak in Pennsylvania in the seventies. So it was like our own little mini Chernobyl, except for it did, luckily it didn't get that bad. They stopped it in time, but radiation still got out. And you know, my whole thing was okay. Radioactive zombies, like the radioactive leak. That's what, yeah. So, um, three mile Island was probably five and a half to six hours away from where I lived and what we were filming. So, that was going to be a little bit of a haul because I wanted the actual reactors in the movie. Oh. Um, but my production manager says, you know, in Homer City, Pennsylvania, there's a power plant and their reactors look exactly the same, even though it's not a nuclear power plant. You could use that mm -hmm. and it's only 20 minutes up the road. Nobody would be the wiser. Much better. <laughs> yeah, so keep in, yeah. So keep in mind, this is post 9-11. Yeah. And uh, again, being a guerrilla filmmaker, we all just loaded in the car. My buddy John, who was the you know production manager, and uh, our cameraman, and myself, we all loaded in the car, drove out to um, you know drove out to the power plant, just drove right on the government property, no care in the world, and we're filming everything. You know, I'm filming the radioactive or not the radioactive towers, but I'm filming the power plant towers and I'm filming the woods and everything. And I mean, you have to have government clearance to get on property. Well, did you know that? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> that was a long time ago. I can't remember. But let's just say that after we shot for a couple minutes, uh, you could hear a Jeep coming towards us or some type of vehicle. And the next thing you know, this military Jeep comes flying up over the hill. One dude dressed in camo, military garb, was driving. Another military dude standing up. <gasps> Gun drawn on us. In all fairness to them, they didn't know what we were doing there. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. You shouldn't have been there in the first place. But, you know, as an independent filmmaker, you do what you can to get your movie made. Even yeah. if it was getting arrested or shot, you got to <laughs> Or shot. shot. So, yeah, I mean. shot, I, but we'll have some good footage. <laughs> yeah, 
uh, so no, I thought for sure we were going to get shot and, you know, they wanted to confiscate the footage and um, eventually they just told my cinematographer, just can you please turn the camera off? Now he claims that he turned it off. Well, he told, let's just say he told the dude, he's like, okay, I shut it off. But he claims to me that he kept rolling the whole time and apparently he lost that footage. Oh, man. So I don't know. I never got to see it. He says that it, it once existed. Maybe it'll resurface someday. But that was... So anyway... So he's got it somewhere. Yeah. So I digress. You know, there was a lot of trials and tribulations. Just a, And a lot of, you know... Uh, so Cossack Zombies didn't work out the way that I wanted it to. Then the movie with Todd Bradley fell through. And it was just like all this stuff. And I just... I thought, well, maybe I'll re-release it. I mean, night feast and I do like a mini documentary on the trials and tribulations. And I kind of made a post about it on Facebook. And then the next thing you know, I had over 100 filmmakers from all over the world saying, we have stories that we want to share. Wow. Filmmakers from the UK and New Zealand and Canada and you name it. And I thought, well, you know, I don't have the budget to jet set around the world mm-hmm. and interview all these filmmakers. So I devised a way where I'm like, you know what? I'll just come up with a bunch of questions. I'll email it to them and they're filmmakers. So I'll just have them set up their cameras and their audio gear on their end. And then they'll film their response and send it over to me through Google drive, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so the idea behind it was great. Uh, but some of the filmmakers sent me really great quality footage. Some of them not good at all. The audio was like all over the place. Some of it was like almost inaudible. There was a bunch of problems with that. You know, you have five, eight different file formats like yeah. nobody was consistent with you know their files and like I said some you had really beautiful nice well-lit backdrops and the sound sounded great and then other ones so you know with that movie I sent it up to two different sound houses just to try to get them to get a balance on the audio but like they still could, could only do so much with it and like I just like because of like the little things like that where that and because I didn't film it, like if I actually went to the locations and set up my own camera and did my own lighting and controlled the sound and then everything was the same, there was continuity there, then I'd be like, okay, that was my film. But it was more like kind of like a mixtape that I just kind of threw together. But that actually is what got in a long a very long-winded story. That's what got my distribution bill. Uh, because SGL found out about the documentary and they were just like, wow, this is super cool. Like nobody has ever done a documentary quite like you're doing with interviewing all these filmmakers and doing it across, you know, uh, Lloyd Kaufman has a documentary, uh, you know, trying to educate people that are looking to get into filmmaking, but nobody really put together a documentary where they're interviewing filmmakers from all over the world yeah. and talking about their trials and tribulations and other filmmakers almost getting arrested for trying to get their movie made or what they do to compensate for budgets or lack thereof and all the drama and stuff like that so blood on the reel was good because it got me a distribution deal um boy i think that i've learned so much in that short period of time since that documentary was done that like i wished i could do that all over again so that's why i say not in a i don't know not in a I don't know how to put it, but like to me, as far as I'm concerned, Noctambulous is the only film that I've ever done. Like that's a Johnny Daggers film. That's the first film that I knew what I was doing. And it's the first film. It's the first film that I did the cinematography on. So I did the, I wrote the script. I did the cinematography on it. I did the lighting. I helped, you know, just as much with all the, the, the costuming and the set locations. And I edited the movie and like, was like completely full on with that. So it's like, if you love it or you hate it, like, that's me. Like, yeah. that was my film. And I love it. It's my baby. So it's like, as far as I'm concerned, like, I think, like, that is the only film that 
that defines me as, as a filmmaker. So, damn, that's so cool. Well, I just now added it on Prime because I didn't know it was on there, so oh. I added it because I want to rewatch it because I really enjoyed the version you sent me. So I want to oh, see that, what you did. Oh, and there's a beautiful new intro to the movie that you didn't even get to see. Like, okay. I spent so much time filming this and. I don't know why I didn't use it in the initial cut. I was just like, I don't know, maybe I was just second guessing my abilities to, to, to like edit it together properly. But mm -hmm. I finally decided like to just go for it. And like, I think it's so beautiful. Like it's, there's a very beautiful intro for the opening credits. Like it's very pretty. So I like it anyway, so. Well, I'm sure you I You'll have to let me know what you think. Oh, I will, definitely, definitely. So I'll watch it. I think I wanna watch it tonight or tomorrow. <laughs> I'm all excited. Cool. I'm like, woohoo, I can't oh, wait. Oh good, I can't wait. <laughs> I'm excited to hear your thoughts on it. Hell yeah, I will let you know for sure. Um, okay, so the beard. What are you working on that's causing you to grow a beard? I've never seen you with a beard in 14 well, I, years. I have never, you've always been clean shaven. Yeah, yeah, always. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm getting fond of it though. Like I'm putting it looks good. Like, thanks, thanks. It's soft. Like it's really soft now. <laughs> but, uh, so I can't really go into a whole lot with my next film because I'm trying to keep it under wraps as much as possible. I will tell you as much as I can tell you. Okay. Um, it's called The Art of Defiance. Okay. And it's the life of a painter. And I played the painter. Um, and, you know, of course, it's, it's my first complete departure from horror. Like, Noctambulist has horror elements. Like, I would consider Noctambulist more of like a suspense thriller like I wouldn't really call it much of a horror movie like yeah. it's more of a psychological thriller you know yeah. which yeah. is what I love but I mean you know it's not like there's no boogeyman or a lot of you know things like that so I don't really like Noctambulous I was trying to very easily leave the horror genre just because I don't want to be pigeonholed you know what I mean mm -hmm. like it's a, as, a, as a creator you should be able to create without somebody saying well you know he's only good at horror movies or he's only good at romance films or this. so i mm -hmm. wanted to do something uh so noctambulous was kind of a little bit of a gradual departure from horror which still had horror elements to it and then with the art of defiance it's going to be a complete departure um from the world of horror uh but it is a backlash against our current society oh okay. say that um, I think that everybody is too, I'm trying to think of how to put this rationally. Um, I guess I'm just going to leave it at that. It's a backlash to a lot of the things that are going on right now that I, that I don't really like with, uh, our socio political climate. I just okay. think that, you know, uh, maybe I'll tell you about it a bit off the screen, um, there's just, there's right now you would think that there'd be a film out there like this. And so far there isn't my luck. Probably somebody will make one similar before I get mine filmed. Oh shit. <laughs> that's, why I'm, that's, that's why I'm being so secretive. secretive. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you when we're off air. I'll, I'll okay. give you a sneak on it, but, <laughs> but yeah, so I'm playing, uh, I'm playing the, you know, the lead of a painter, and I just wanted to change up my appearance for it and uh, start getting into character. I mean, we might be a, a, still another year away from filming, um, but like I, again, as a method actor, I live a lot of my current life now trying to like, I walk around the house every day reciting lines and pretending that I'm that character and grew the beard in already so I can start feeling like that character. And, mm -hmm. 
really just throwing myself into the role as much as I can. Damn. When do you start filming? I don't know yet. I'm not going to push it. Like, that's the one thing that I learned with like the past films like Caustic Zombies and, you know, the Monarm Car with Doug Bradley and everything like that is it's like, there was such a rush. And with Noctambulist, I didn't put a rush on it. I'm like, you know, we're doing a period piece. And when everything comes together, it'll come together. Like, I think we started production on Noctambulist in 2014. 2015, maybe. I know that Blood on the Roof had just completed, and I don't even think it hit the shelves yet, and I had already started on Noctambulus. But Noctambulus took three or four years. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. And I'm glad that it did. Yeah. Not, I mean, there was the writing the script, and mm -hmm. then there was the casting, and then there was getting all the locations, and then there was filming, which took almost 10 months, just because mm -hmm. of some of the actresses' schedules. Uh, then there was a minor riff with the uh, distribution company uh, and I took my film back and said, screw you, I'll self-release it. And then we kind of, <laughs> uh, kind of kissed and made up in a way. Um, so yeah, cause you know, I'm, I admit like it, I, things have to be done my way and if I'm not happy, I'm not going to release it. So well, yeah, you have to, it's your baby. If you're putting all that into it, you can't. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not really one to sacrifice things easy, especially because I consider that movie my baby, and it is, mm -hmm. so I was very protective of it, but we kissed, and we made up, and then they released it, so I mean, it didn't get released until 2019, and we started production in 2015, so, you know, I look at the Art of Defiance, <clears throat> uh, you know, I still have to find some of my uh, cast members and some of my crew and locations and I don't want to rush it like if it takes another year before we start production like I'm cool with that yeah like the end result yeah. is what matters like as long because it has to be as beautiful as Noctambulist if not better like, yeah every movie has to be better and better so yes. you know uh, I'm not gonna hurry it anymore so it's up in the air, but that's what I'm working on at the moment. Well, in the spare time. I mean, right now I'm just focused on doing a lot of artwork too, so that I neglected for too long. So the film will happen when it's ready. Yeah. Well, that's good. Speaking of the art, um, what give kind of an idea of what kind of art you've been doing. I know you do a lot. You're very artistic regardless, but it's um, wood, wood burning, right? Yeah. Wood burning. It's amazing. <clears throat> oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I didn't know you could like, I mean, basically draw. It's drawing. I didn't know that you could do that. It's like tattooing, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, you know, you I used to work at a tattoo shop. So, I mean, it's very much the same, except for instead of human skin, you have wood. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, you know, I mean, I've been painting and drawing my entire life. Um, I dropped out of high school, but before I dropped out of high school, I had uh, two small uh, scholarships to the Academy of Art in San Francisco wow. and um, the Art Institute of Pittsburgh. But then I decided like halfway through 12th grade, like screw school, I'm going to drop out and be a musician, you know, and, and all that stuff. So I, you know, there went like any college. <laughs> so didn't do that, but, uh, you know, worked on art for, for a little while, you know, here and there. And then I kind of just gave it up. And, you know, as you know, over the years with the music and then eventually getting into films and doing magazines, like art kind of just, kind of just didn't do it anymore. And then in 2011, you may remember this, 
I started doing, uh, I started Psychomancer Industries where I was doing custom Ouija boards. Do you remember that? I remember that. Yes. So it's funny because originally I was just going to wood burn. Um, and I had never really wood burned before, but I bought a wood, like a very cheap wood burning kit at Walmart and tried to wood burn and it was a failure. So instead of wood burning, I just started hand painting a bunch of custom Ouija boards. And uh, that was about the time that in Pittsburgh, they were thinking about tearing down the Evan City Chapel, which is used in the opening scene of Night of Living Dead. When they pull into the cemetery, you see the chapel right off the bat. And uh, over the years, it became dilapidated and in disrepair. And the city council had voted they were actually going to tear down the chapel. Well, then a bunch of, you know, horror fans in the area decided, like, we need to save the chapel. And that was all spearheaded by Gary Striner, who was George Romero's right-hand man in Night of the Living Dead. So uh, Gary and I were friends, and I was doing the custom Ouija boards. And basically what Gary had in mind was that he was going to create an auction so that artists from all over the world could create art and then send it to him, and he would have auctions and sell off these pieces of art. And in return, all the proceeds would go to raise money to fix the chapel so that they could save it from being torn down. And I reached out to Gary and I was like, hey, look, you know, I'm doing these custom Ouija boards. Uh, I'd be really happy to do a Night of Living Dead Ouija board, donate it to you. And um, he was like, wow, yeah, like I'd be honored. Like that would be like the one and only official Night of Living Dead Ouija board. So I'm blessed I got to do like the official one and only Night of Living Dead Ouija board. Um, I didn't wood burn that. That was all painted with acrylics and uh, it was all done in black and grays. To, to, pay respect to the movie and uh, Gary auctioned that off to raise money for the chapel and after that like things in my life just kind of happened certain personal issues happened and I just kind of got away from art again altogether and then about a year ago um just for something to do in between filming and writing the books uh got another wood burning kit and Oddly enough, I couldn't wood burn before, but then as soon as I picked it up this time, I started doing portraits like right off the bat that were like turning out really fucking awesome. Hell yeah. Um, I want to know. So then I discovered, oh yeah, the Ash is really uh, one of my favorites and the Jack uh, Torrance from The Shining was really cool. But so I launched Hope and Anchor Customs and a lot of what people requested me is horror, but then lately, like that's, a lot of it's changed. I do a lot of family portraits and dogs Mm -hmm. and um you know a lot of of whatever whatever anybody commissions me to do but i love it and uh speaking of so for my next movie art of defiance like i'm creating a bunch of giant original wood burning pieces that are going to be used in the movie and also a bunch of original paintings since i'm a painter in the film like Mm -hmm. so right now like i'm focusing and that's another thing like about not really knowing when i'll get to film like i have so many paintings i have to create for the movie and so many wood burnings and things i have to create myself that are that'll be showcased in the film um but anyway yeah so like right now like i'm really focused on hope and anchor customs just because it's a creative outlet Mm-hmm. and uh you know with the films like the film distribution like you know you don't you don't make a ton of money being a filmmaker even if you have distribution deals yeah and uh you know you only get paid every quarter like you don't get a weekly paycheck so like you need something to do in spare time um and so you know hope and anchors you know enables me to still create and uh you know be productive and help out a little bit so but i enjoy it 
Yeah. Well, it looks like you're doing good though, too. I mean, you got a lot of pieces that you're selling. Yeah. I, I was very shocked at, uh, you know, how successful and how receptive everybody was, but yeah, it's been, it's been going really good. So I dig it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're kind of amazing. You do so much. It's so cool. Cause it's neat that to see, you know, cause we have known each other for so long just to see how much you can do. And every, you know, every few years or every year you're doing something different and it's just awesome to see your growth and changes and just so much. You're, you're, you're an inspiration, Johnny. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, and I appreciate you and, you know, being on the show today, it's, it's been, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. I just try to do what I can. I don't think I'm a master at anything. Like I don't have, like, it's funny because people think I have this big, you know, I don't know. I think it's the way I come off. People like, there's a difference between being confident and being an egomaniac. Like, yeah. I think everybody should be confident in themselves. But I am definitely not a master of anything. I do a lot of things, but I'm not a master at any one thing. And I just enjoy doing what I do. And I, I don't, I still like, man, like, not only do I not have an ego, but it's like, it's like even when I put out artwork or even a movie, like I'm always like, oh man, like I'm embarrassed for anybody to even look at this. So, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. I think as an artist, like you should always feel that way. You should always be humble by what you put out. So I appreciate, you know, that I'm an inspiration, but I'm definitely not a master of anything. And I just do what I can do and mm -hmm. you know, try to stay humble and cool about it all. Cause you know, I see people on a daily basis that blow my mind. I'm just like, man, they're so, they're so gifted. So, yeah. But you know, you only live once. So I just try to do everything that I want to do. Yeah. Well, I don't want to be on my deathbed. What's that? And so you're fucking doing everything. It's like you do everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's even things like that we were talking. I was like, oh shit, I didn't even know that. Yeah. It was just crazy. Yeah. You do a lot. But so I guess we're hitting the end of our show. Um, well, I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I'm just, I'm so glad you came on. It's, you know, like I said, it's been so long that we've known each other and I'm so glad to finally do something with you. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, we've yeah. talked for years and whatever, but it, it's cool to have you on and it's like, we did something. So it's awesome. We did. We did. Well, I mean, you're one of my oldest, dearest friends. You know, I love you. It's good to be on the show. Um, like, who knows? Who knows? Maybe one of these days, if I'm still making a movie, like that's the thing. I always threaten. <laughs> like, I'm like, that's it. I'm done. I guess just to keep people guessing. I don't know. Is he done? Is he gonna make more? What's he doing? I don't know what I'm doing from day to day. Like you don't even you know. know. So, <laughs> but if I do, you know, decide if maybe you're still doing a podcast five years from now and, and you're still acting because you you're a talented actress. I, I've seen you've you've sent me some of uh, the projects that you were on. You know. Like I think mm -hmm. maybe about a year ago, you were involved yeah. with a couple of films and, mm -hmm. you know, so, no, I mean, maybe you'll act in something that, that I do if I'm still doing it. You know? Oh yeah. That'd be amazing. I've been asking for 14 fucking years. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, one of these days. I mean, I do have, you know, I do have certain things like I, I tease and I say, that's it. I'm making one more movie and then I'm done. And for, you know, some people might cheer that and other people might do that, but, um, you know, there are still things I want to do with film, even though I say I'm done. Like, I would love to try. I'd like to go. See, that's the thing that sucks, though. Like, because when you don't have a budget, people beat you to the punch with things. And then people oh, yeah. think that you're, people just think that, like, you're copying. Yeah. Other people, you know, 
but one of the movies that I grew up loving, and not to hold you up because I know the show's why. Oh, no, you're fine. Um, before Alex Cox did Sid and Nancy, which I know you and I both love Sid yes. and Nancy. Uh, <laughs> when, Sid, when, when Alex Cox was doing Sid and Nancy, he had some money left over and was like, hey, you know, let's make a really weird spaghetti western type thing. Uh, so, you know, he got a lot of the same actors that were in um, Sid and Nancy. Got Xander Sloss, who was in the Circle Jerks. He played the wiener boy named Carl in that movie. <laughs> I actually had him on my radio show last year, which was so cool. That I had Xander Sloss, who was in Sid and Nancy. And he was in Sid and Nancy. He was one of the guys at the bar with Nancy <clears throat> when nice. she was crying about how Sid's not practicing. And But yeah. everybody else in the band fucked up the show. <laughs> um, anyway, so he was on the show. But anyway, um, it had Elvis Costello in it. Joe Strummer was one of the lead actors in it. I think oh. I might have talked about this movie before. Uh, but it was Alex Cox's movie, like right after Sid and Nancy. Well, originally what had happened was The Pogues, uh, The Clash, and Courtney Love and a couple other people were supposed to go on tour in Europe. And then they didn't have enough money to go on tour. Oh, that's crazy. But they had money, but like it wasn't enough to give them a European tour. So Alex Cox was like, hey, let's just take this money and make a movie. And so he made this really bizarre spaghetti Western called Straight to Hell. And it's so campy. And it's so, oh, you got to check it out. I, I just bought really the familiar. Bought What's that? It sounds really familiar. You got to check it out. I know that they came out with like some type of collector's edition that I bought like last year. So okay. because of that, it's possible that even though it's obscure, that it could be on Amazon. I'm not sure, yeah. but it's awesome. Um, but I, I would like to, like one of my best friends, um, Phil Lear, he's an awesome painter. We went to high school together. We had a lot of the same art classes together. He eventually moved to Colorado Springs. He's doing some really awesome work. So check out Phil Lear. Um, amazing, brilliant painter. But he keeps begging me to come out there. And I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna come out to Colorado Springs and I'm gonna film this Western movie. And, but like, it's gonna be like this cheesy spaghetti Western like thing, you know? And now I hear like, you know, Danzig's doing like a vampire Western or something like that. Oh man. You know, so I, like, I don't want people to be like, oh, he's just jumping, you know, but like because of Straight to Hell, which Alex Cox is one of my all time favorite filmmakers. Like I've always wanted to do like some weird spaghetti Western. Um, so you never know. Maybe yeah. one day I'll be like, hey, you need to come out to Colorado Springs. We're going out there to shoot. Hell yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah, I'll be there. That's what, well, I'm not from Colorado Springs. I'm from Denver, but it's closer to yeah. me anyways than Pennsylvania. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's where I'm from. I partied in I Colorado Springs. Yeah. I think after all these years of being friends, I don't think I knew that. Really? Yeah. Yep. I grew up down there, so I know exactly where you're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, apparently he lives down the road from where Tesla had his lab and stuff like that. Oh, okay. I didn't even know yeah. Tesla was from there, but. Yeah, yeah. Apparently he had a lab there. His young, uh, Phil has a son that's like maybe nine or 10 years old. And he's like really, really into science. So he would, Phil messaged me one day all excited because he had just taken his son out to see, you know, where Tesla had his, one of his labs or what have you. So it was interesting. Yeah. But yeah, so. Anyway, I do appreciate being on the show. Uh, it was definitely a lot of fun. It flew by. I feel like we chatted for like half hour. So I know. Yeah, it went by really quick. And it's like I'm looking and we've been talking for two and a half hours. Doesn't feel like it, though. It really went yeah. by quick. And even we talked yeah. like, what, 30, 45 minutes beforehand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
I'm like, oh, we talked about our dogs. I'm like, my dog is probably going nuts right because I'm up in my studio. Doing the pee dance. Oh, she's probably downstairs going nuts for me right now. That's okay. She's like, where's my dad? Um, Well, real quick then, go ahead and do if there's, um, you know, where people can find you, um, anything, you know, any shout outs that you want to give, you know, your Instagram, your Facebook, just where to find you and your films. I, uh, you know, I'm always terrible at remembering URLs. Uh, you can find Noctambulist and sadly Blood on the Real if you want to torture yourself for two hours. I want to watch it. <laughs> Amazon, you know, Best Buy, Target, Walmart, uh, all the major movie retailers. I definitely highly recommend Noctambulist if you're into silent neo-noir thrillers. Blood yes. on the Real is a documentary that has some good points, but it's really crudely shot. Like it's just rough. Because like I said, of all the different filmmakers filming in their own parts and some people said good stuff, some people said not so good. So that's <laughs> eh, whatever. But Noctambulist is what to check out. Uh, Instagram, I don't know, I'm Johnny Daggers official, I think. Um, you can Let's look real quick. Yeah, you can look at John. I'm not a very social person or social. I don't, I don't, I don't like using social media much anymore. Just, I don't know. So I don't remember. Johnny underscore daggers. There you go. Thank you. I appreciate (laughs) it. And then there's the Johnny daggers page on Facebook, which I haven't updated until this show. Like there's a couple things I haven't even posted in months, but you know, yeah, it's whatever. I like to be in like real low key, you know, under the radar. Yeah. If you find me, you find me. Like that's, I, all my favorite bands or artists that I've ever liked were, especially back in the days before internet, like you had to search high and low to find them. And then when you did, it was like, yay, this is cool. So mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't communicate a lot on social media anymore. Like I just kind of withdrew from everything. But if you message me kindly and say hi, I'll gladly say hi back, I think. <laughs> it might be like five days later, but you'll get to I it. I don't know. Somebody messaged me last night which was weird. They were like, hey, I saw your post on Facebook. They messaged my private email and they're like, hey, some girl. She's like, I saw your Facebook post that it was like real vague. And then she sent an attachment, a picture of her face or something that I didn't even open up. And I just like <laughs> put it right in, I just put it right in the trash bin. Cause I'm like, this is just creepy. Now in all fairness to the girl, she could have been just a fan of something. And maybe she had a question cause she commented on the Hope and Anchors jacket that I posted. Mm-hmm. Maybe, she, but I was just like, nap, you're going to the trash bin. Just because yeah. Yeah. I'm like, she's stalking you. you know, <laughs> yeah, it was just a weird vague email. But if you email me politely and be like, hey, man, like, you know, and don't seem like a stalker, I will reply. <laughs> yeah, I won't trash your message. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So I'm just going to give a couple um, thanks real quick. So I definitely want to thank you for coming on. You're my first guest. And this was just, it was so much fun. I loved it. I've been wait. I've been looking forward to this for like weeks. I'm like, fuck yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> um, I want to thank Crazy Ink Publishing for uh, taking on my series, Broken Halo. So Broken Halo, the first one, and the second one, Broken Halo Blood Curse, are both available on Amazon right now. Um, third one, I believe, will be released in January. Um, I'll keep people updated on it. Um, follow Sinister Parlor Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Um, also on YouTube. I want to thank Matthew Price Thompson with MPT Graphics for doing um, my show artwork. And I want to thank you too for doing that really badass um, flyer. That was super cool. Mm. I yeah, it'll that. be cooler once the show airs. That was just kind of like a quick thing. But yeah, That's you're welcome. With that. 
Yeah, that was cool. I like that. And then some of the other stuff that you sent me that I will start loading here soon. It was, it was badass. I love it. Um, I want to thank Chris Atella for doing my intro and outro music. Um, he also did it for my previous show and he's just an amazing artist. Um, I want to thank, uh, and also check out horror with sir sturdy. Um, he's how I had started podcasting and I've been recording a little bit with him and we have some upcoming stuff coming up. So I'll let people know on that. Um, Christopher Inlow, I have worked with him on quite a few acting projects. Um, we've done radio stuff together and he will be co-hosting here and there with me. So I want to thank him for coming on board with me. Um, and then, you know, just all of my friends, family and supporters. I just, I thank everybody for listening and sharing and just being amazing. And with that, we are done. <laughs> See ya. And thank you. Yeah. Thank you.